0: Welcome to Keith and I. Don't Tread on Anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am joined by Thomas E. Woods, Jr., author of Diary of a Psychosis, How Public Health Disgraced Itself During COVID Mania. Dr. Woods, welcome to the show.
1: Glad to be here, Keith. Thank you.
0: Where is the best place for people to purchase the book?
1: Uh, you can get it at any major online retailer, but I've got them all linked conveniently at diaryofcovid.com which also, as maybe we can talk about a little bit later, n- not only does diaryofcovid.com give you background about the book and you know, easy ordering links, uh, but it's also got a couple of, of free goodies that you, that you get when you get this. When you get this book, you get two more free books. And so I, I do that because I, uh, I have a number of reasons for doing that, but one of them is my people are, and people who, who are supporters of the Libertarian Institute are readers, and we are the sort of people who... We buy one book and we have we've barely finished it and we've already bought two more. Well, I'm just including the two more, because I know that's how you're gonna be anyway. So I'm including the two more when you get this first one.
0: Henry Hazlitt said, the art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of an actor policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. Using this mindset, walk us through the secondary consequences of things like locking down a society.
1: Yeah, well, let's assume that everybody involved had good intentions and that all these negative consequences were just things nobody could have anticipated. We'll we'll pretend that. And the secondary consequences were what I was concerned about from the beginning, that the, the idea that we'll just focus all our attention on one thing and maybe the other things will sort themselves out. I, I don't know. And and they, they being the public health establishment, barely acknowledge the existence of the other things. And what were these other things? Well, people's mental health, their their social lives. I mean, you, you tell people suffering from depression that they need to socially isolate or social distance, and that's a death sentence for them. Even if it's not outright suicide, mentally it's a death sentence. But not to mention. All the health visits that were missed, we, I have stories and stories and stories of people who lost relatives because they, they couldn't get treatment they needed. Scott Horton himself was telling me about a, a, a journalist who wrote for Antiwar.com who couldn't get in for his, his early cancer. I think it was colon cancer, which is supposed to be one of the ones they can, they can get early-ish. And they, they more or less sent him home and said, you know, you can come back later. And when he, came, when he finally was allowed to come back, they said, oh, you're stage four. Sorry about that. So we have that uh, problem. People's livelihoods completely destroyed. There were entire lines of business that are just not compatible with this approach to society. And so they're, they're gone. People's savings uh, ruined, uh, decimated. F- families split apart. Families were deeply divided over this, over the, the VAX mandates. Uh, These are these are stories that don't show up on any chart or graph, and that can't be easily quantified. But they are out there. We all we all know that Uh, friend groups torn apart. Uh, So society can't function with this level of lack of trust between people. That we look at the world so differently, so that one group thinks the other group is trying to kill them, and vice versa. That's that's more more or less what they gave us, and we can see. Uh, the consequences of this. I, I had a blog post in late 2020 called "Death by Lockdown," and I just went through uh, the the problems with uh, with cancer and other illnesses, uh, all those numbers being ignored. The 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 problems with uh, supply chain disruptions, the developing world, how they would be affected by it, with people uh, being pushed closer and closer to the brink of starvation. I mean, in Myanmar, formerly Burma, we heard that people were eating rats and snakes because that's what you need to do when you have no income. When you have no income in a country like uh, Malawi, where you make a dollar a day and you live, you, you, you earn the money to eat for that one day, if you have no income for extended periods, we know what happens. We can, we can do the math in our heads. And this is actually one of the, the red pills, uh, I, or I beg your pardon, white pills I got from the late Gret Glyer, who, who, who died uh, way prematurely. He was a young guy, spent three years of his life living in the poorest country on earth, Malawi. And he told me that when the regime there tried to impose lockdowns, which Africa, of, of all possible places with its young population, absolutely did not need uh, e- even if you accept their logic, the people of Malawi understood what that meant for them, that that meant certain death. And so they rose up and, and said, absolutely not. <laughs> we're absolutely not doing this. And so they didn't. Now, there's no, there's no story about this in the West. There's nothing about this in the Western press. But this is a guy with people on the ground there, and he told me they were not going to let this happen. So why couldn't Western countries summon the common sense and courage of the people of Malawi, the poorest country on earth. So, so that's, that's the, the tip of the iceberg. Of course, there were also the, the problems of deaths of despair, and I think they're way undercounting those, because we all know people who suffered in that way. Uh, we know about people who, uh, who took up bad habits or they ate more poorly. We know that there were lasting effects on, frankly, how much people weigh. From as a result of being kept indoors, told they couldn't even exercise. In some places, you couldn't even go outside to exercise um, around the world. So that's a, that's a taste of it, I would say. And not to mention, although maybe this is a good consequence, but it definitely made people more skeptical of their doctors, because if my doctor has an office where there's a little bin for clean
0: pens and dirty pens, I know he's an idiot. When it comes to mask mandates, now, what is the trouble with this? Just put on the mask. I don't want you spitting in my direction, especially when there's this terrible thing going around. What's wrong with having a mask mandate?
1: Yeah, well, all right. I'll say at first, I didn't know what the truth of the matter was about masks. And so in my own writing on it, I didn't write that much about masks because I just didn't know. I thought maybe they might work. I don't know. How would I know? This is not anything I, I write about or study, but all right, I, I, I finally decided that I had to look at it, and when I looked at it, I noticed that there just didn't seem to be any difference between places that were doing it and places that weren't, and that's that's a big thing. Like, if if you're going to ask me to engage in an invasive intervention like this that covers the face, the face is the distinguishing characteristic of the person. It's through the face that we communicate with people, not just verbally, but much more importantly, non-verbally, and not to mention young kids developing and trying to learn language and, and learn uh, facial cues uh, are being disrupted by this. There better be absolutely overwhelming evidence this is doing something. And so you, you look at one place or another, you compare counties in states right next to each other. So the counties are right next to each other, because if you compare let's say a county in Florida and a county in Idaho, people will say, oh, that's not a fair comparison. There are so many variables. We can't isolate it to masks. All right, well, what if I have two counties that are right next to each other, exactly identical demographics, but different masking uh, numbers and policies? Is that good enough uh, for the police? And the answer, it, it turns out, is that there's, there's just no darn difference. And then you look at the official research, like coming out of the CDC, And they would say, oh, look, we can just show you that that masking works, because look at this slice of time from here to about right about here in this one state. We notice that the numbers are going down. So that goes to show. What they don't show is that the masked parts of the state after they ended the study immediately shot up, so thereby completely undermining the study. Now, did they revisit this and say, well, hold on, everybody, I guess we were a little bit too simplistic attributing all the success to masks. Of course not. So it just, it doesn't seem to do anything. And e- even, by the way, you might say, but surgeons wear masks. Okay, well, surgeons aren't wearing masks for the same reason they were asking us to wear masks. But beyond that, it's interesting is that there's actually scholarly work showing that doesn't even do anything, which shocked me. That doesn't even do anything. But that, that's a separate matter. The the so-called Cochrane Review did... Um, a study, basically, a study of the studies, and the the head researcher of that, Tom Jefferson, uh, said that there's just no evidence for it. even the even the duck masks that, that make you look like a duck, uh, the ones that uh, that I call them suffocation masks, the 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 KN95s and all the N95 masks, uh, that that doesn't even seem to make any difference, um, and and I I get that you feel like it ought to, but yet the the fact is it it just doesn't. And I have a, a medical friend who says, if you're wearing one of those masks uh, and you're able to wear it for more than 30 minutes at a time, you're wearing it wrong. I guess This is not not meant to be done. So, oh, oh, and then one other thing was, I started to get annoyed that people had internalized this idea that uh, COVID was spreading because you're a bad person and you just won't follow the, the rules. We have these rules for a reason, you dope. Why don't you follow them? Whereas these good people, these scientific people, super, super duper smart people, they're obeying the rules and they're getting much better results. Well, the charts just refuse to tell that story. They just, no matter what you do to them, they just will not tell that story, especially if you adjust for age. This is a, there's a thousandfold difference in mortality between young and old in this whole thing. So you correct for that. And, and the, this story is just not being told anywhere. So a friend and I, made, uh, created a website where we, we gave people a quiz. You know, okay, if this is what makes COVID spread or not spread, then let's see how well you do at our little quiz. And so we'd have charts comparing different places, but we wouldn't say what the places were. And we'd say, which place do you think um, limited restaurant capacity to 25 percent? Like, which one? Probably the one that's doing better? Wrong. <laughs> so So every single time you get the answer wrong, if you use their reasoning that, well, if they had the interventions, things must have been better. So one of the things we did for that website was we, we looked at the European countries and the various times at which they introduced their mask mandates. And you would think if mask mandates are an absolutely essential ingredient in, in pandemic mitigation, that we darn well better see a decisive result on that chart after the introduction of the mask mandate. So it should be easy to look at the chart unmarked. And figure out where the mask mandate must have gone into effect. So we we challenge people. All right, pinpoint it. You know, see how close you can come to where it was introduced. And in every country, it's completely random. Sometimes it's after the numbers came down, sometimes it's as they're going up, sometimes it's at the peak. It you just can't tell. It's
0: completely random. It shouldn't be random. That's the point. It should not be random. The book is Diary of a Psychosis. According to the NIH website. Psychosis refers to a collection of symptoms that affect the mind where there has been some loss of contact with reality. During an episode of psychosis, a person's thoughts and perceptions are disrupted, and they may have difficulty recognizing what is real and what is not. Now, a lot of COVID covidians as they're often called will say you are experiencing psychosis because you just won't listen to the experts you say they're experiencing psychosis how do we falsify this how do we know who is experiencing psychosis
1: mm, that's a good question well i'm not the one going around ordering people to radically change their lives and upend them so that's the first thing <laughs> i like think the presumption is in my favor because i'm not demanding anything of anybody and i'm not uh socially ostracizing people for non-compliance or I'm not imposing on them personal and professional destruction because they refuse to take an injection that they feel they they neither want nor need so I think right off the bat we have that but again I can I can look at the results people say well you're not a medical doctor okay I can read a chart you know the thing is I can read a chart I'm not going to tell you what medicine you should take but I can read a chart and like any educated person, I can read a chart. I'm very happy that I have uh, a very good medical person, Dr. J. Bhattacharya, writing the forward uh, to my book, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya from Stanford. So I, I had plenty of, of medical allies, but the point is, I just need to look at the charts. So how about the the, the states that were most frequently discussed, I think, during all this, because they represented the extremes we had California on the one hand heavily locked down to the point of absurdity, absolute absurdity. The rules made no sense at all. Like that, drive-in movies were allowed to go on because you are after all in your car, but the health department said no double features. <laughs> like what is, what does that have to do with anything? So that, so there's California and then, oh, by the way, when they reopened Disney at 10% capacity, which 10-15% capacity, it was the last Disney property anywhere on Earth to be reopened. They opened it on the condition that you can't scream on the rides. <laughs> because, because screaming on the rides is a voluntary action, you understand. So you had that. Then you had Florida, which even before DeSantis officially opened it in September 2020, it was pretty open. I mean, I, I was more or less doing what I wanted to do. The restaurant thing was annoying at the beginning and haircuts and stuff like that, but uh, but yeah, it, 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 uh, it was pretty open. So what's the difference? Well, when you look at all-cause mortality, which is what really matters, because the trying to compare COVID deaths, you run into the problem of what should be coded as a COVID death. There's, there's, no, there's no international agreement on that even now. So that's a problem. And then secondly, there are obviously deaths, premature deaths caused by the mitigation itself, and you have to capture that too. So all-cause mortality uh, is, is the uh, metric to use. And Florida did better than California. I mean, that's all you need to know. That is, I mean, that's the one statistic you need to know. Florida did better than California. Uh, Age-adjusted, they did better. So if you're going to continue to tell me to do things like this and put on a mask and all these other useless things when I have all the evidence I need, and we've had this evidence for a long time, and you can clearly see these things don't do anything. That's the, that's the sign that we're, we've removed ourselves from the realm of reason. I keep saying that the, the reason that the Biden people were so panicked that, that masks were coming off on airplanes was not that they actually thought, oh, no, a whole lot of people are going to get sick. Yeah, they're deeply concerned for, for our well-being, Keith. No, the, the real reason was they were concerned nothing would happen. We take the masks off and nothing will happen, which is exactly what happened. We took the masks off, nothing happened, and we went on. And I think they didn't want that because they might have feared, if we take the masks off and nothing happens, then maybe the people will wonder, well, I wonder maybe if nothing would have happened if we had also not done X or not done Y.
0: There is an article at the New York Times trying to solve a COVID mystery author of Diary of Psychosis, please help us solve this mystery, referring to Africa's low death rates. The coronavirus was expected to devastate the continent, but higher income and better prepared countries appear to have fared far worse. Now, I constantly heard that, uh, you know, COVID really attacks those in poverty. So if you don't advocate things like lockdowns and mandates, you're hurting people who are in poverty who are disproportionately african-american so it's kind of racist to be opposing any of these policies however when we go to the continent of africa what can we learn
1: well for one thing africa's demographics are very very young so if anything you would expect covid to be much worse in japan even though japan's much richer than uh, basically any country in africa i'm sure including south africa um the demographics are such that you would expect Japan to have a catastrophe. And so Japan's an interesting thing to get into in a minute. But Africa did not have that, and they ended up doing well also. So I think I think they don't actually understand what exactly was going on. I think I, that should be obvious. They need to say, we don't exactly understand what's going on. We, uh, because this you know, maybe maybe Africa should have done worse in some sense than it did. Maybe they just weren't tracking it maybe because it just didn't seem like an event, you know? So maybe they weren't so carefully coding the deaths or something. I I don't know, but I, I rather suspect that it's a matter of, I don't think they understood the phenomenon. Now, you may say, well, um, evil people engineered this, and they knew exactly what was going on. Well, even if they did, that's a handful of people. But the average person in the health field, I think, was flummoxed by this, because even Andy Slavitt, who was a, a White House— covid advisor when the one time they asked him a tough question on msnbc and i mean only once only one time otherwise it was fawning over these people he was asked how do you account for the fact that florida and california seem to be doing about the same and his answer was well you know there's a lot about this virus that we we think we understand uh, that just keeps surprising us and and we don't understand it as well as we thought well that was all i was asking him to say That was all I was asking for. We really don't exactly understand what's going on because the things we think are going to help don't seem to help. And when you ignore the things we recommend, it doesn't seem to matter. So maybe we just don't understand this as well as we thought. I mean, in Scandinavia, basically nobody, nobody was masked. No, very, very tiny minority. And when I went over and visited there, really the only people masking were Asian immigrants and American tourists, you know, making fools of themselves. You know, I mean, like that was all going on, and nobody really tried to explain that. Um, they tried to explain Japan doing well because they wore masks. I mean, they they just didn't understand what was going on. But that humility was very short lived because immediately after Andy Slavitt said that, he then said, "But we know what works, you know, social distancing and masking." And but but actually, no. That but according to what you just said, I guess we don't know what, what works because. We did those things, and it doesn't seem to have, to have made any difference. Can I take a minute on Japan? Do you mind if I talk about Japan for a minute? Please do. All right. So I followed this, as, as you may know, Keith, pretty closely. Uh, I mean, some may say like a fanatic, but very closely. But because, you know, my life's being disrupted, my kids' lives are being disrupted, I want to know what's going on. And it amazes me how f- few people were really demanding answers like this and, and trying to find out what was going on. I want to know what the hell's going on here. So, I was looking things up and, and trying to find if there were any dissenting voices, and if so, what were they saying, and where were they getting their information? Well, as I would read about this, later on, S- Sweden became everybody's uh, uh, preoccupation. Like, they went nuts about Sweden because Sweden didn't lock down, and oh, they're going to get what's coming to them for not obeying the public health. PhDs. And then after the whole thing was all said and done, Sweden has better all-cause mortality than any other European country. <laughs> I mean, you just, you can't make the stuff up. But anyway, Japan, though, early on, was really the country that the crazies were focused on, because Japan was not really responding the way they thought it should. It had a basically a lackluster lockdown. It wasn't really doing, like, the the kind of contact tracing that they wanted, uh, not to mention, they weren't testing asymptomatic people because they said that would just be a total waste of time and it would bring up a lot of false positives. So they're not doing that. And they have, as we know, a very heavily, um, you know, heavy elderly population. Uh, their, their demographics have skewed that way for, for quite a while. So what happened? Well, what happened was in the West, all these warnings of doom. And I in, in Diary of a Psychosis, see, I can do this too, uh, I've, I've got all, i got the headlines, you know, warning about, is it too little, too late for, I, actually, no, it was that's the thing. The headlines weren't, is it too little, too late? It was like Tokyo, too little, too late. Like, they knew it somehow. They already knew. They had not observed this thing at all for, for any length of time. But they knew Japan was going to get what was coming to it. And then, nothing. I mean, they had some of the lowest numbers you can imagine. Nothing. So then you'd think the know-it-alls would be chastened by this. They'd say, well, maybe you just can't trust us to tell you what's going to happen. Maybe, maybe we ought to retire to a monastery for a while and reflect on our stupidity. No, no. Instead, we got, oh, you know what? We figured it out. It's that Japan wore masks. But, you know, first of all, you knew Japan wore masks already, didn't you? When you were predicting that everybody was going to die. So how come that didn't affect what you were saying then? Why is it only when your, your predictions are completely falsified that you suddenly notice something you already knew? But secondly, Eric Topol, who's a very widely published medical figure, uh, Eric Topol said, well, the reason Japan did well is that the government issued masks to them, that the government sent out 50 million masks to the population. And that's what did it. Now, again, could have said that earlier, uh, but, so he's gotta, but he's got to have some explanation. Well, I guess it was masks. Okay. When you look at the actual situation in Japan, people in Japan were laughing at those masks because they were all too damn small. Nobody could fit them on their faces. Everybody laughed at them. They were a national joke. But our dopes in the U.S. don't even bother to look into this. They've just got a ready answer because we always have to have an answer. And and our answer is uh, they wore masks. And the government sent them masks, but the masks were too small. And I quote in, in my book a researcher in Japan who says, you know, even the experts really don't know the answer. So again, over there, they had a little bit of humility. You know, we don't exactly know what's going on, but Eric Topol knew it was the government-issued masks. And incidentally, every time we get told, oh, well, this country smashed that virus, and it must have been because of their masks and lockdowns or whatever, that that happened in the case of some Eastern European countries. Uh, we, would get, oh, we would get things about Czechoslovakia or, or, the, or, I beg your pardon, the Czech Republic. Uh, well, that's, they, they did it through masks, But then the thing is, you got to just you got to follow up with these countries. You got to keep following up and check on those on those graphs, because around maybe November twenty twenty, all the numbers are going up in all the all the countries that we were told had smashed the virus. All the numbers are just going up and up and up, uh, country after country after country, and we never got anybody revisiting this. So I I'm just joking about it in the book, saying, well, I guess there must be a I guess we didn't know that Poland had a Thanksgiving. Everybody must have gathered for Thanksgiving in Poland. And that's what made the numbers go up because we know that masks work. Or I guess there's a Czech Thanksgiving that nobody knew about. or Because, of course, we were told that at Thanksgiving, that's where death's going to happen. Thanksgiving, all you people getting together for Thanksgiving. Uh, and again, in the U.S., that just didn't seem to hold. I mean, Christmas, you look at the numbers, it's almost like Christmas didn't even happen. So what was going on, they don't have an answer, but what they accept, let's keep trying the things that obviously are doing nothing other than destroying the social fabric.
0: What if anything is wrong with this logic? If there's an issue in foreign policy, I go to, you know, people like Raytheon or the Central Intelligence Agency. <laughs> if I have a question about Scientology, I go to the Church of Scientology. If I'm curious about finance, I'll go to the people of Goldman Sachs. And if I have an issue about health, I will go to the health authorities like uh, Anthony Fauci. What, if anything, is wrong about uh, that approach to you know uh, solving potential issues in the future? All right. Well, well, we
1: have to identify who the people are who are actually, quote-unquote, experts. And I, I mean, the thing is, I rely on experts all the time. We all do. You know, I... Some expert figured out how to build my car, and I know nothing about how it runs, but I have confidence that I'll get in there and I'll be able to drive it, and it won't suddenly go in reverse when I'm on the highway. You know, there are things I just take for granted because I know that there's an open process by which these things are being done. But what's being asked of us here is that we're being asked to accept as experts people who are designated by the state and and then— People whose track records, academically and medically, are unimpeachable, but whose opinions are different from those of the experts handpicked by the state, are then demonized, suppressed, shunned, ridiculed, and mocked. Something's odd about that. I ought to be able to get, uh, you know, as they used to call it, a second opinion. I'd like to get a second opinion. But you can only have the first opinion, apparently. Now, your examples that you're giving are, of, of course, absurd because you're, you know, you're you're proposing that we consult people who all have a vested interest in one particular way of looking at the world. Now, I think up to now, we assumed that health, and especially public health, was exactly uh, the way we would imagine them to be, selfless, dedicated exclusively to human well-being, uh, dedicated to science, but yet in during this crisis, we said that's clearly not the case. I mean, I'm no fan of government schools, but the arguments they made about keeping kids out of schools were obviously not based on anything. They weren't based on looking around the world. We knew from April, the contact tracing study in Iceland, that there was no problem with schools, but they're just pretending that they, uh, they've, they've done the work and they've found out X and Y. But we know this isn't true. I mean, they later told us, yeah, that whole six-foot rule, we don't even know who made that thing up. <laughs> we don't even know. Somebody and It seemed, seemed good. You know, we find these things out later that, what, are they just making stuff up? And I, yeah, I think, I do think that some people want to be the important person holding a clipboard, uh, ordering society around. And not to mention there was this weird period where uh, Dr. Fauci, I've got the the passage in the book, Dr. Fauci released an article where he said, you know, this could be an opportunity for us to completely redefine our relationship with nature. And, he, and he, it was like a, a, a tiny little anti-industrial revolution rant. I thought, so a guy like this is in charge of the pandemic response, a guy who thinks it's a good thing that uh, civilization is being slowed down. I mean, the, 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 um, the World Economic Forum put out a tweet saying, hey, you know, uh, our cities have been a lot quieter lately, and that has a lot of great results for the environment. Uh, how, how have things been in your city? And people responded, are you out of your mind? I mean, you're cheering that the sounds of life are all gone? And even the WEF had to take the tweet down. These people don't think like normal people. They do not think like normal people. They think when there's no life around, that's a net plus. I'm not going to consult them to tell me what I ought to be doing. These people are psychotic. Uh, but but again, I was inclined to think, at the beginning, I didn't know anything about this Anthony Fauci. You'd never heard of him before. The first few days, I was inclined to think, all right, well, maybe this guy knows what's going on. Because at the beginning, he said, look, I I don't think, you know, we need to be cautious, but I don't think that Americans have any real reason for panic. And I think young people should go about their lives and continue to go on cruise ships. I mean, he said that thing about cruise ships. He just came out and said it. So I thought, oh, maybe he's like a measured, reasonable old guy in the bureaucracy who's not particularly political and is just doing his best. Because I know people like that do exist out there. But after a while, just observing that he would say one thing and another thing would happen, well, then you just have to start losing confidence in them. Or have you thought about collateral damage from these things that you're doing? And the answer is not really. Well, then you have to really rethink these people. I mean, he, he was say, he was on The View, you know, that show The View with all those women? And he was on that show, and, and I think it was Joy Behar said to him, you know, college football is coming back and they're going to be packed stadiums. And I'm thinking to myself, COVID's going to have a feast. What do you think? And Fauci says, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's very unfortunate. And then even the Today Show made fun of them and said, but it never happened. The numbers nationwide all continued to fall despite this. So after a while, you got to say, "Ah, you know, I gave you a chance. I really feel like I gave the guy a chance. (laughs) And it was just... He was so cavalier about shutting, uh, shutting society down. It was like he had no, no sense of what,
0: what indeed the collateral damage of this might be. On page 200, you say, if you had a friend who destroyed your business, canceled a year of your children's lives and deprived you of the things that brought you joy, would you keep that person as a friend? You may say this is different. They thought they were helping. Turns out any tyranny that's ever existed, the person always thinks they're helping going back to probably ancient Egypt, but certainly applies to Mao, Stalin, uh, Pol Pot, and everyone else. So how can we differentiate between good people who are misled and trying to help versus people who we just need to kick out of our lives?
1: Yeah, that's, ju- that's just a case-by-case basis. For example, early in the book, I, I mentioned, not by name, but somebody I know from college, who is in the medical system in Boston, and I do know to be a good-hearted person. I genuinely do. And she really did want to mitigate any collateral damage. Like She was not a zombie, um, monomaniacally focused on one thing. Uh, she really did want uh, want that, and she did think that there were things that could have been done. But she thought I went too far. And so she wrote to me and explained herself, and then I wrote back and explained myself. And I felt like Even though I think she's profoundly wrong on this, I just can't tell myself that her heart was in the wrong place and that she intended to do evil. I don't think she intended to do evil. And so, I mean, we're not buddy-buddy, but if I see her at our reunion, I'm not going to shun her. Uh, Whereas uh, people who called you a grandma killer or demonized you for asking questions if I had any of those in my friend group, i would I would have to get rid of them. and and I'm not the sort of person who says, if you don't agree with me on everything, you can't be my friend. i I love the areas of disagreement I have with my friends because it makes things spicy and fun. But on something like this, I mean, obviously there are some things we can all agree. If somebody said we ought to poison all the redheads, I think you got to just not be friends with them. <laughs> you know like that that's it because you, you can't do that. And I feel like it so you know what you're reading uh, there from that in that passage is a reflection I had during all this. Uh, I, I actually wrote to my newsletter audience to say, you know what do you, what do you guys think about this? Can we can and should we stay friends with people who, I mean, it's it's one thing to have a difference of opinion, but who really like demonized you for having a different opinion and, and who you know who thought you got what you deserved if you lost your business or something? I don't see how we can. And I and I'm not normally that way. I'm not normally the sort of person who politicizes all of life and I, I choose which mustard brand I buy based on their political allegiances. I mean I, I can't live like that. I just can't. But I just I felt like I had to make an exception on, on this. But but that the fact is that in my life I was lucky. I apparently I've chosen my friends well. I didn't have this problem.
0: I remember going to our favorite place that we would go every Saturday, a place called Charleston's in Arizona. And right when the you know uh, major lockdowns ended, we all walked in there and they said, hi, uh, we do require masks. And first of all, I'm just blown away. And I said, but uh, you require them even though no other customers wearing them? You're going to require them for us? And she goes, oh, no, no, no. Uh, once you sit down, you can take them off. And I said, hold on. I got to put it on, even though I'm not wearing it now, walk 10 feet to I can see the table. We always sit out right there and then I can take it off for two hours while we watch the football game. And she just looked at me with all the confidence in the world and said, yeah, <laughs> how is it that people were able to fall for such trash? Do you have any theory as to why it was so easy to, to get so many people on board with something so ridiculous?
1: Yeah, I don't know. it's. it's- conformity of course but it, it's almost like you wonder was this some kind of test to see just how dumb people could be because if they're this dumb maybe we'll try more things out on them if they're willing to debase themselves in this way you know it reminds me keith of when i oh, geez, i guess it must have been 2021 when i went out to see uh, our friend rob schneider do stand-up comedy not too far from where i live and we sat down uh, you had to wear a mask to the end of the venue and then he comes out and he says, I want you to know the management told me that once you're seated, you can take off your mask. Now, at a restaurant, you understand why that is because you have to eat and the mask gets in the way of your mouth. There's no reason that this logic should hold in a theater. It doesn't even hold in a restaurant, but why should it hold in a theater? So I... I turned to my wife and I said, there is no way the management told him that (laughs) he's just, he's just telling us, take the masks off because he's, he's in effect defying them. Are you going to actually come up on stage and correct me? Go ahead. Come up on stage and be booed by everybody as you correct me. So nobody said a word. Nobody said a word. He said, you could just take them off because you were seated. And so everybody did. (laughs)
0: Yeah, the best was probably I was on a mock jury, and they said, "Well, you know, uh, the the building's real tight. Uh, we're going to be doing this for about four hours. Please keep your mask on." I said, "Look, the money's good. I'll do it reluctantly." So we did, and they said, "Well, uh, we have our lunch break, and unfortunately, other people are out there, so you can take the masks off where you're currently sitting and have lunch for the next hour. But after the lunch hour, you have to put them back on." I said, "Oh my." The same people sitting in the same space can take off the mask for 60 minutes, not 61 minutes, and then you have to put them back on. It was unbelievable. At least there's some moving when you're getting to the table. But in this case, you're just sitting in the same place. It was so bizarre. I came across a summary of a book titled Elephant in the Brain. This is by Robin Hanson, who worked at George Mason uh, University. It says, It says, on the face of it, the reason that people participate in politics is to improve the world in some way. However, most of watching us engage in politics in a way which is emotional, poorly informed relative to the strength of the claims we make, and we are generally unwilling to compromise on political issues, these facts are better explained if politics is a way of signaling affiliation to a tribe of like-minded people, than as a way of actually trying to improve the world. If we can say that that's more or less true... What can we learn from that, as far as uh, lessons to extract for uh, promoting uh, freedom in the future?
1: Well, I think this is the tough one: is that we learned something about mankind through all this, and I came out of this uh, very chastened and demoralized, because to some degree, what you and I are doing, Keith, relies on the assumption that if people are given a reasonable argument, they will give it their assent, and if they're given an unreasonable argument, they will object to it, and they'll find the flaws. Uh, I, I'm finding a flaw in that. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think that's—I'm not so sure that's true. So I don't know what that means for us, but I, what I think it, it has to mean is that we can't just write refutations of what these people are saying and just think, well, people's natural affinity for reason is going to make them agree with me. I think we need to do more visceral things like more flat-out ridicule of these people. I mean, we're, we're laughing at these people. Make videos where you, you show how ridiculous everything they're asking for is, and you laugh at them so that you make people embarrassed to be part of it. I mean, it's, it has to be... I'd like you to be embarrassed because it makes no sense logically, but if you're embarrassed because you're afraid you're going to look like the fool in the video, that's good enough for me. So, I, you know, I, I think our side tends to be the side that wants to write the philosophical treatise, and we need philosophical treatises, but we also need to get good at just flat out reaching people on a gut level, which is one thing the other side is very, very good at, is reaching people, because that's all they have, they don't have the logic, they have the gut, they have the gut, they have stories, they have um, appeals to emotion, so unfortunately it means we may have to engage in more of that than we're doing now.
0: So you have a follow-up to this uh, referencing uh, lockdown stories where uh, people uh, give an explanation of the other side of the equation, the cost of lockdowns. What has worked better, in your opinion, as far as getting people to uh, second-guess themselves, charts and logic or hearing individual anecdotes? Yeah, that's a good
1: question. I mean, I think it depends on the person because for some people – I mean, for me, for me, the charts did it. For me the Mm -hmm. charts did it because at at first i wondered huh well i mean maybe this this could be something dangerous i don't know like how how am i supposed to know how how would you know automatically a priori there's no way you could know that but so i so i looked at the charts and i said all right well i guess i guess we're okay and i guess the stuff that they're telling us to do doesn't do anything that that was just obvious to me and and i don't want to um disrupt my life for no reason that was it i mean very simple very simple logic um so it does work for some people but i do think um because there are more and more little mini documentaries being made about particular people and circumstances uh deeply deeply tragic that at least make people think well maybe we went a little bit too far you know that might at least push them to there and if they're willing to get to there maybe we went a little bit too far then you can start throwing some charts in oh and by the way look at this isn't to add insult to injury all the things we did it looks like it didn't really didn't really do anything i mean isn't that amazing that look at this terrible story we just saw and you know it'd be one thing we could say well we saved some lives but it looks like it didn't do anything that would be how i would that'd be how i would do it now that so i put this book together so we've got we got this one you got to buy this one diary of a psychosis it ain't one of my free ebooks you got to buy this one but i do have a free book that goes with it as as i mentioned and as you as you just mentioned um, and, and that one's called Collateral Damage. Victims of the Lockdown Regime Tell Their Stories. I changed the title of that because initially it was, it was called COVID Stories. And I was telling this to Michael Malice, and he hated that title. <laughs> That's a terrible title. Think of something better. So I think Collateral Damage is a better title because that really does kind of tell you what the book is about. And to my knowledge, there is no such collection anywhere nobody has collected these stories of people who suffered they suffered because and i call it not just the lockdowns but the lockdown regime so that includes the lockdowns and the vax mandates and the personal and professional destruction for not getting the shots and whatever i've got people who suffered from all of it in there and they were not allowed to tell their stories as as we know they were not allowed to tell those stories you are not allowed to object to the mitigation uh alleged mitigation measures because your your voice will be suppressed and you will be demonized. And that's inhuman. And you might think, well, these are probably really depressing stories. But the, the thing is, we need to know this. And the full story of what happened to us includes these tragedies. We need to know it and we need to read it because these people want to tell it. You might think, oh, they probably just want to forget everything that happened. They need someone to hear it. They need somebody to hear what was done to them. And NBC News isn't going to cover what was done to them. CNN isn't going to cover what was done to them. So I put their stories together in collateral damage. And I would like people to read them because it humanizes them. And it it validates their experiences. So And you don't have to pay for it. You just buy Diary of a Psychosis, and then you go to diaryofcovid.com,
0: and you get it. Two more quick ones for you, Tom. Thank you so much for your time. On page 36, you said... You'd think people would be delighted at this good news, but I've never seen people more resistant to good news in my life. You later called this the good news allergy. Why is it that people hated hearing good news during the during these events? I'll be charitable and then
1: I'll be uncharitable. The charitable answer is they felt like people would become uh, complacent if they thought that things were actually were getting, getting better. And so they don't want that information getting around so maybe there's that I mean, I'll, I'll maybe the, I mean that's still a really weird position to take but fair enough but I think for some of them this there are people who have no accomplishments in their lives and no ambition and for them this is the most exciting thing they were ever going to live in uh, live through and they could be heroes by sitting on their fat asses and doing nothing except demonizing people who were trying to put society back together. Those people, they would spend their time demonizing. And so they would feel important. Like they suddenly, their, their empty, pointless, stupid lives suddenly had meaning. And you're going to end that prematurely if you spread information about things getting better or not being as bad as you thought, or we did better than we thought we'd do after the Super Bowl or whatever. They just don't want to hear it. They want to be the heroes in their own little dystopia.
0: Yeah, uh, you saw the same response after Ramaswamy went viral saying, you know, climate related deaths are down almost 95 percent in the last hundred years. People could not have been more upset with that statistic. Uh, Final uh, question on page 199, you say, whatever the path forward is, it seems that it has to involve rational people identifying each other, interacting with each other, helping each other and building normality again together what is uh some advice you have for people who are looking for that person at their workplace you know there's got to be one of them but who is it
1: yeah well in that case um you drop little hints and see if anybody picks up on it's in a way like flirting <laughs> you yeah. know, like, except except not romantically you know in flirting you kind of drop little hints and you see if somebody picks up on it you know or you know you could just go out and say uh you know, hey, have you ever heard of, and it could be somebody like um, Dave Smith. So it wouldn't be Joe Rogan. Everybody would immediately know there's something the matter with you if you want to talk about Joe Rogan, right? That's not allowed. But Dave is in that realm where a lot of people know him, but not everybody. And if you know him, you're probably a good guy. You know, so you could start with with something like that and then see see where that takes you. I mean, I ended up building a, a community of normal people is what we call I, I actually own the domain, because you know there's that book Rules for Radicals? I actually own the domain rulesfornormalpeople.com. I haven't done anything with it yet, <laughs> but I, I built a, uh, a community of people. After this started to happen, I just thought, all right, I thought the regime was hostile to me before. This is just off the charts, and I think the time has come. Yeah, we still have to write our articles, we give our speeches, but the time really now has come for us to band together and, and do something to protect each other. Uh, you know, to to put our heads together. Some people have knowledge about some things like how to get your kids educated when the world hates you and wants to brainwash your kids and other people are experts on what to do with what to do with your money when the values are being sucked out of it or where's a good place to live that is gonna let you live and where I mean all these kinds of questions that we have to struggle with all the time. Uh, these are practical questions. They have nothing to do with the non-aggression principle. They're how do I live in this world that, you know, or, or what do I do if my career is suddenly cut short by this crazy requirement? What am I supposed to do? I'm 55, let's say. I, I'm not, but, you know, I'm. What, what am I supposed to do? I wanted to build a community where we could all help each other, you know, where, where one person's knowledge could help somebody else and his knowledge could help somebody else. So, If you go to diaryofcovid.com and you go ahead and get my free collateral damage book, you'll be taken to a page where you can be in that community for two months and see if you like it. But that was my contribution here is to try and build something because um, I've given all the speeches I can give and I've written all the articles and now I think it's time time for us to do something.
0: I love that approach of building alternatives. I was reading Race and Economics by Walter Williams, and he just makes the bulletproof case against the taxicab medallion requirements, the occupational licensing uh, to give someone a ride in your car in exchange for money, just makes the bulletproof case. And after all this time, we still have it. However, what happened was alternatives rendered that medallion more or less uh, irrelevant with things like Uber and Lyft. So with things like Tom's School of Life, things like the uh, Ron Paul Homeschool Curriculum, I could not be uh, more grateful for, uh, for for those alternatives you've uh, created for the same people in the world. Tom, give us uh, any final comments you have, and remind us what website we can uh, purchase the book at.
1: Well, first of all, anybody listening to Keith Knight already knows, um, you know who the who the people to listen to in the movement are. So And I, I don't say that on, on very many shows. Dave Smith doesn't need that from me, but most of them—well, I don't know. I'll just say this. I feel like I can rely on Keith Knight he, he, to, to know um, where, where the correct place to come down on things is. And, um, you know, I was over—you were at my Christmas party, and you got there early, and I was overhearing you having a conversation. And I—you're I, you're, you're extremely knowledgeable, especially for somebody—for a, a young whippersnapper like yourself— so, folks, keep on supporting Keith Knight and the Libertarian Institute. That's the first thing. Libertarian Institute made this book possible, this book that we've been talking about today. So think about the Libertarian Institute when you're thinking of worthy causes. Uh, but then, so that's my, those are my final words. And then do please check out diaryofcovid.com. Uh, if for no other reason than if you're ever thinking of writing a book, this is like the gold standard book website, and you should model yours after it. it it's, it's an interesting exercise in how to market a book so check it out diaryofcovid.com it's got free bonuses for you including the collateral damage book Uh, so go do that and thank you keith
0: thanks to everyone for watching keith and i don't tread on anyone in the libertarian institute dr woods thank you for your time as always
1: my pleasure